The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Welcome to The Hearing with me, Kevin Poulter. In each episode, I chat with some of the most interesting characters in and around the legal profession. You'll hear about their lives, their loves, and sometimes we even get round to the law. In this episode, I'm joined by Sir Rupert Jackson, recently retired Lord Justice of Appeal and a legal reformer who's familiar, surely, to all lawyers. With a career spanning five decades, he's seen seismic change at the bar and in our legal system generally. As he resumes life as a jobbing barrister, we meet in his chambers at Four New Square. You'll hear how he continues to fill his shelves with his own new writings, which he's very keen to share, and how he's teamed up with fellow reformer Lord Wolfe. All this between taking instructions on international arbitration, professional negligence and construction. Rupert's legacy may well be his cost reforms, but he's not hanging up his wig just yet. The hearing. So I'm going to take you way back. Well, not way back. Uh, that sounds impolite already. But, um, but but take you back to the beginning of your career, really. And where did your interest in law come from? Are you a family of lawyers, uh, great uncle? No, we. Uh, I don't have any living relatives. And I don't think I've ever had any living relatives who are lawyers. Um, uh, I studied classics for two years at Cambridge. I much enjoyed debating in the Cambridge Union. Mm. Indeed, I became president of the union in due course. Uh, And uh, I liked the idea of a career which would involve public speaking. I switched to law in my third year at Cambridge. Mm. I didn't find law as a subject quite as interesting as classics, (laughs) but uh, it was a very useful subject. uh, And really, it was during my time at Cambridge that I formed the ambition to go to the bar. Mm. And uh, how was that met at home? Was, that, was there any expectations uh, of where your career would go when you went off to Cambridge, or, or from you or from any family? No, members? I think my family were very content that I was going to become a barrister. Mm. It was. Indeed, I think it still is a very interesting career, Yeah, which I would recommend to any young person. Well, a lot of people still pushing uh, pushing through those doors uh, yes. and, and trying to get in. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit later maybe about what the future for the bar holds and, and, and the legal profession generally. Yes. But um, uh, So we've, we've been through uh, Cambridge, uh, classics uh, into, into the law, and it's a broad subject, it's a broad area. Um, where did you settle on and, and sort of what prompted that in terms of an area to specialise in? Well, I did my first six months pupillage in a personal injury set as the pupil of Michael Wright. While I was there, a friend of mine from Cambridge called Roger Toulson suggested to me that I like, might like to move into his chambers for my second six months pupillage because there was an opening for a new tenant there. So in my second six months of pupillage, I went to the chambers of uh, Ralph Gibson QC. Ralph Gibson was the head of chambers and Roger Toulson was the junior tenant. Uh, uh, I did uh, six months pupillage there and they kindly invited me to stay on. I didn't have any particular ambition as to a specific area of law Mm. to practice in. I was very happy to do crime, civil or family or whatever other work came my way. Mm. In my early years at the bar, I did all manner of cases. I did criminal cases in the Magistrates Court and the Crown Court. I did civil cases in the County Court. 
I appeared before odd tribunals and odd immigration cases. So I did any work that came my way. Mm. Which is much of the case nowadays, I think, for junior barristers and uh, certainly certainly younger solicitors uh, that are going through their Well, I think that younger practitioners now know they want to practice in some particular area. They'll say, Mm. I want to do human rights or Mm. I want to do commercial or I want to do crime. I think there's much more specialisation at an early stage nowadays than there was in the 1970s. In the 1970s, a particular specialisation never really occurred to me. I just wanted to be a barrister. Mm. And and you were in and out of court doing the public speaking as well that you were aspiring to. Yes. And, and how did that go down? Um... Uh, it went down variably. There was one magistrate in London who said to me that I had delivered the most absurd mitigation he had ever heard, which was not encouraging. Uh, other, other judges were a little more encouraging. It was all very interesting. And, and what kind of supervision were you getting? Like, were you encouragement from within chambers? Uh, the older members of chambers took a kindly interest mm. in my career. They gave me advice when I sought it. They sometimes uh, introduced me to their solicitors. Chambers was very small then. There were about 16 people. Most members of Chambers were doing criminal work on the Western Circuit. We were a, a modest-sized set of Chambers down in the Temple then. Yeah, and presumably a lot of travelling around as well, which yes. was possibly a little bit more difficult than it is now. The travel was fine. I travelled by train or, or or by car. I remember buying a somewhat ancient Ford Escort, <laughs> uh, and I travelled quite often down on the Western Circuit because that's where my Chambers... Uh, had most of their work. Right. The plan was that I would join the southeastern circuit to try and change the profile of chambers. Mm. And, and how did that happen? Uh, in the early years, I did some work on the southeastern circuit. Mm. I did some work on the western circuit, and some work in London. Okay. What are the ones that? What are the sort of cases that stand out for you? Are they interesting? Are they rewarding to you personally? Um, in terms of the arguments that are being made. What what makes a good case? Well, uh, after a few years at the bar, I started to specialise in professional negligence. Hmm. Uh, a firm called Reynolds Porter Chamberlain, who you may know, yes. started to send me a lot of work. They acted for the insurers of professional persons. And so uh, I found I was doing a great deal of professional negligence work. One of my most interesting cases in the early days at the bar was defending a firm of solicitors against whom it was said their former senior partner had been negligent. Uh, The senior partner was long dead by then, Mm. and so I had to uh, reconstruct what his defence would have been from the available documents in the file. That was a two-week trial in the High Court in Leeds, which I remember Mm. was a very challenging case to do, in front of an extremely irascible judge that was in the mid or perhaps the late 1970s. Gosh. We won in the end, but it was a close-run thing. And, of course, I couldn't take any instructions from the solicitor who was said to have been uh, negligent. Of course, yeah. After doing a number of professional negligence cases, uh, I had the idea, jointly with a friend of mine mm. in Chambers, of writing a book on professional negligence. So John Powell and I teamed up to write a little book called Jackson and Powell on professional negligence. So what year was that? That was pub. We wrote it it in, we started writing in 1979 
and delivered the manuscript in 1981, and it was published in 1982. The book was quite successful. Yeah, well, yes, it I can see. It brought in uh, a fair amount of, of new work, which, of course, was again in the professional negligence field. Yeah. And it went into subsequent editions. The uh, publishers uh, adopted the system of publishing a new edition every five years. Mm. For the first four editions, I remained involved. Indeed, John Paul and I wrote the first two editions together without any assistance. Mm. After that, we started to bring in other members of chambers. And after the publication of the fourth edition, I went on to the High Court bench uh, and handed over my half of the copyright to Roger Stewart, who was my former pupil. John Powell has recently retired. Uh, He oversaw the production of the latest eighth edition. And I think now John has handed over uh, his half of the copyright to to, uh, one or two other members of Chambers. So the book goes on as a Chambers book. Yes, yeah, fantastic. And and you can see... Uh, I'm just looking here at the at the bookshelf, and uh, it's considerably thicker as it goes along. Um, yes. Now, now, does that mean that there's more liability, more professional liability, or just more to talk about? Uh, there are more professional liability cases now than there used to be. When John and I wrote the first edition, we had great difficulty in gathering material. I spent a couple of days in the basement of some hospital going through old medical journals to find reports of oh, right. clinical negligence cases which weren't reported anywhere else. And John, I think, went through the Estates Gazette, old editions of the yeah. Estates Gazette, to find uh, surveyors' cases and so on. We had a real struggle to get sufficient material for the first mm. edition. And we also garnered overseas material by going to the various Commonwealth law reports in Middle Temple Library. So in the first edition, it was difficult getting material. Mm. In later editions, with the profusion (laughs) of uh, reported and unreported cases, the difficulty is controlling the material. Uh, Yeah, well, I'm conscious that we're sitting with uh, uh, Thomson Reuters, and uh, who are sending us information on a daily basis uh, across all um, areas of law. And I I imagine, yeah, uh, so editing it down is now the the challenge. Yes, I'm I'm now merely a consultant editor of the book, but I can see the challenge which the troops have yeah, uh, but the, the book I, th- I think has done well. Uh, I hope it provides a useful service to the profession, and also it it supports chambers because I believe these chambers are the leading set mm. in professional agent work. Mm. Well, obviously your career at the bar briefly touched on your career at the bench as well, but also um, the one that you're perhaps most well known for at the moment is your report into costs. Yes. Much has been written about you, as much as by you, yes. uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the costs uh, review. Um, but there's a legacy left there, and there's been a lot of, as I say, um, praise. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism uh, for the report, but I want to take it back to uh, you, you. You get to the Court of Appeal, uh, I believe, and yes. you are presented with a task. Yes. Uh, how did that come about? Is this something well, you were looking for? No, was it no. A complete I was, I was uh, asked by the Master of the Rolls to carry out a review and uh, then present a report proposing ways of promoting access to justice at proportionate cost. Hmm. It was a concern that the costs of civil litigation were getting out of hand. Yes. So I did that. I spent the whole of 2009 conducting a review. I published a preliminary report in May of that year and my final report was delivered in December of that year and published generally in January 2010. And presumably you were sitting at this time as well? No, I oh, took you... a year okay. out of sitting. Uh, the, the, the costs review, mm. which I conducted, 
in 2009 was a full-time job. Here is the preliminary report, which yes. you can see runs to two volumes. Yeah. Here is the final report, which runs to a fairly fat <laughs> single volume. Uh, I was assisted by assessors. I set up various working groups and pilots yep. and so forth. And that kept me fully occupied for a year. The reforms which I recommended then had to go out to consultation. Some of them required legislation. Mm. Some of them required rule change or a new adoption of new practices by mm. particular bodies. There was a general implementation of those reforms in April 2013. And uh, obviously there's uh, quite a time has elapsed in the, uh, since then. Um, but even the process of getting it through and, and pushing it through took a long time. Was that a frustration for you? Or was that just accepted that that was the process that, that was needed? No, the implementing report was harder than writing it. And for writing it, I just sat down, sucked my pen, went to lots of meetings and produced uh, a package of recommendations which I thought would fit the bill. But the implementation process was much more difficult. Mm. The Master of the Rolls, David Newberger, set up mm. a judicial steering group uh, which oversaw the implementation work. The members were the Vice President of the Civil Division of the Court of Appeal and various mm. other grandees, and myself effectively as the gopher. And I did all the spade work. I drafted a lot of rules and practice directions, which I presented mm. to the Judicial Steering Group and the Rule Committee. I set up various pilots, again, getting the approval of the Rule Committee and the Judicial Steering Group. I, I set up working groups to draw up the, the, ter the terms of standard directions online and so forth. This I was sitting during this period, but the implementation work took up a huge amount of mm. my time. And also I was keeping an eye on the legislation going through Parliament uh, and occasionally speaking to people concerned with the legislative process. It all came together in April 2013. And those reforms have now been in place for just over five years. Yeah. Um, and how, because I know uh, from what I've read and, and from just uh, hearing uh, about things uh, sort of on, on the street, as it were, um, that you still take an interest. You're still sat there in the courts from time to time. You're still giving sort of counsel or, or consultation, I suppose, um, on the periphery. Yes, I take an interest. Um, uh, ever since the implementation date, if I thought things were going wrong, I would give a lecture. <laughs> and uh, back to say, public speaking. <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that that's an interest as such now, but it's. Uh, but from time to time, I gave lectures, uh, pointing out where things weren't going quite as I'd hoped they would mm. go, and people have heeded those lectures, and there have been some rule amendments mm. and and changes in practice and so forth. I also have written a book or two editions of a book on the reform of civil justice, which I hope will be of use to practitioners. Yeah. The first edition was published two years ago. It was mm. called The Reform of Civil Litigation. I'm pleased to say that the second edition was published last month. It's yes. called The Reform of Civil Justice. Uh, it, this is edited by my former judicial assistant, Stephen Clark, and mm. myself. And Stephen, I think it's fair to say, has done a lot of the spade work for the second <laughs> edition. But I have done some writing as well. The second edition is a bit broader than the first. It mm. looks at uh, reforms since the publication of my report, mm. and it looks at the early history in a little bit of, a little bit more detail. The main object of this book, both in the first edition and the second edition, is to explain to court users the principles and the thinking which underlie the reforms which I have introduced. Mm. 
the detailed rules are set out in the white book. There are sundry uh, learned commentators who have written uh, books about the, uh, the precise application of those rules. And I have not attempted to repeat that in this little book. This little book is intended to set up thinking, the intention and the underlying principles. Okay. And uh, there's so much change afoot uh, within the court system, uh, the system generally, that we're seeing a, a proliferation uh, of litigants in person. Now, how, how do you propose that the system deals with those? Uh, is it something which, which should be encouraged, discouraged? Is, is it something that you see as just a part of, part of life now? I greatly regret the cutbacks in legal aid which have uh, led to the increase of litigants in person. Mm. I have always vigorously argued for the maintenance uh, of legal aid at its original levels. Mm. Uh, and I think that the cutbacks in legal aid were a big mistake. Uh, litigants in person take up more court time. Mm. And at the end of the day, the savings in legal aid, I think, are more than offset by the additional costs of the system. What I find particularly galling is that some people say that the cutbacks in legal aid are part of my recommendations. Uh, a very senior uh, QC uh, who has held public office until recently, actually said that at a seminar last year. Mm. And of course, the reality is that um, the cutbacks in legal aid are directly contrary to my recommendations. Yeah. That's led to the increase in litigants in person. Mm. As to how the court should deal with the problem, well, we've got to do what we can to help litigants. We've got to allow them more time to present their arguments. Mm. There's a limit to the extent to which we can give them indulgence in terms of breaches of the rules. And I'm not, not saying that different rules should apply mm. to litigants in person. Uh, but we've got to do what we can to cope with the situation which has arisen. Mm. I was for some time the liaison judge for the personal support unit. That gives strong support to litigants in person, helps yes. them fill in forms and so forth. Uh, all I can say is the growth of litigants in person is most unfortunate mm. and we've got to do the best we can. Mm. Uh, do you see anything uh, uh, around the corner or any suggestions that as to how this might be assisted? We can provide assistance, like you say, through various schemes um, and we're seeing the work I do in employment law, um, the Citizens Advice Bureau is overrun. There are an increasing number of pro bono clinics available, mm. but with finite resources. Um, it, it's, it's difficult. And it's difficult also on the other side because your clients are incurring additional costs in, in, in doing the job of both parties often, or that's certainly how it's perceived, um, which there's a, there's a negativity to. Um, and the resistance in some ways. I, I, I can't see a time when this is going to change in the, in the near future, certainly. Is, is further reform required to, well, to address that? The growth of litigants in person uh, is, as you say, a fact. Mm. It's not going to change in the foreseeable future. Um, it is tiresome for clients when they see the, the solicitors and the council and they are paying doing the job of the other side as well. Yeah. On the other hand, if you don't point out relevant authorities to the court or you let the court be misled, it yes. can be very damaging to your client at the okay. end of the day. Yeah. So uh, it's actually in your client's interest that you present the case fairly and don't let um, 
relevant matter mm. escape the attention of the judge. Yeah, and the duty of the court as well, obviously. Um, now, last year, uh, sorry, early this year, I should say, um, uh, you retired yes. from the bench. Uh, now, a lot's been said about retirement ages, and how did you feel? How did you feel about that? Because. You're, you're back. You're here. Uh, you're, you're working hard. Um, we're we're going to touch on what you're what you're working on now. But there's 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 lots more to give. Um, is it a frustration for you the the retirement? Uh, age? I think the retirement age of seventy is too young. Mm. Uh, uh, I think that the old retirement age, which still applies to some of the more senior judges, yes, uh, of seventy five is a much more appropriate one. I should add that. There was a supplement to my costs review last year. I carried out at the request of the Lord Chief Justice and the Master of the Rolls a supplementary review uh, to look at extending fixed recoverable costs. That project ran from January to July last year, and the product of that uh, uh, of that review was this supplemental report which made proposals for extending fixed recoverable costs across the balance of the fast track mm. and the lower regions of the multi-track. The Ministry of Justice say that they will consult in due course about the, such reforms from this report as they plan to implement, and thereafter they will presumably implement them if satisfied by the consultation period. But all of the uh, consultation and implementation concerning that supplemental report uh, will happen after I have retired, which is uh, in some ways unsatisfactory. Yeah. So my answer to your question is I think that the retirement age of 70 is too low mm. uh, 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 and I have ongoing work. Uh, in connection with civil justice reform. Mm. I, I, I suppose there should be, uh, well, maybe uh, like the driving test. Uh, sh should you have to resit some sort of process or have a review to allow you to carry on for another five years? Um, uh, how, how do well, you... Well, there may... Uh, uh, I can see a case for saying that if the retirement age goes back up to 75, mm. uh, there should be some review mechanism to make sure that the judge is, is medically fit and able to go on uh, for a few more years. Mm. Whether you have something like a formal driving test, I'm not so sure. <laughs> but there should be some mechanism for preventing judges who have really given off their best going on to the age of 75. Certainly, uh, when I reached the age of 70, I didn't feel unfit to carry on judging. No, no well, look, they're still working hard. Uh, yes. so, so back here at uh, Four New Square, and uh, uh, lots, lots still to do, it seems. Yes, I have rejoined my former chambers, uh, I am offering my services as arbitrator. I have received some bookings for international arbitrations. Mm. Uh, and I've been asked to give some lectures overseas on civil justice issues, which I will do. And, uh, and continuing with the judicial role as well, um, uh, the, the court in Kazakhstan. Yes, you um, I've, been appointed, uh, I've been appointed one of the judges in the... AIFC Court in Kazakhstan, the Astana International Financial Centre Court. Uh, I expect that in that court I will deal with general commercial cases and with construction cases. Mm. I went out with my fellow judges, most of whom, in fact nearly all of whom are retired Court of Appeal judges, mm. to Astana recently. We were all sworn in and the court formally opened for business on the 1st of January. Uh, I think uh, two or three judges are going out this month. Okay. Uh, I shall be going out next month with two or three other judges. 
and uh, we will deal with work as it comes in. Of course, to begin with, the workload of the court won't be heavy because people have to issue proceedings and proceedings mm. have to run their course before they reach a trial stage. Mm. So you've been over to the court already, though, for I this have, yes. one in. And how is it? Uh, um, is it? Is this as exciting for you? Is this a good, uh, an interesting time? I think it's going to be extremely interesting. The countries of Central Asia, particularly mm. Kazakhstan, have a lot of international business. Uh, there is a, a, tran- a substantial transport link between China and the West, the new railway which runs through Kazakhstan mm. to uh, Europe. The, uh, the country, I understand, has, has plowed quite a lot of its oil revenues into the construction of the new capital city of Astana and into the creation of the Astana International Financial Centre. To have a court administering the common law mm. is part of the scheme for the uh, AIFC. And and uh, one of your uh, fellow reformers of civil law and civil justice, uh, Lord Wolf, uh, is heavily involved with that. Yes, he is well. the chief justice of that court. And and um, has it been a case of sort of writing your own rules uh, or writing them as they go along uh, no, in terms rules, of how the procedure the, the, works? Uh, uh, an English QC has produced a draft of rules for the AIFC court mm. in Astana. We had a judges' meeting in Astana in December, right. the end of last year, mm. to review the draft rules. We uh, went through them together and made some proposals for amendments, and those rules have now been approved and are in place. For me, it's a great pleasure to work with Lord Wolfe again because I first worked with Lord Wolfe in the mid-1990s when he was carrying out his inquiry into access to justice Mm. and I was serving as his barrister assessor. Now, over 20 years later, I'm working with him again uh, in the new context of the Astana International Financial Centre. Yeah, and and, and, uh, so working with such... Um, an esteemed group of, uh, of lawyers. Um, is, there, is, is this like a new society? Is there a club forming around this? Um, uh, because the, the list is incredible. I, I've not got it here to read off, but I will. I will add it on later. That um, this, this is this is a hugely influential group of people. Well, it's a very interesting court. I mean, the other judges are, uh, as you know, Lord Wolfe, uh, Sir Jack Beatson, Sir Stephen Richards. Sir Robin Jacob, I think Andrew Spink QC. Yes, Lord Falk. So I've got and the list Edward here. Fox, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, it, it's and are you meeting in London as well? Are you meeting only over there? We've, we've had a meeting at the Kazakhstan Embassy. Uh, we've had a judges meeting in Astana. Uh, as I say, during the year we we'll, we go out in smaller groups hmm. to deal with ongoing work. But I expect that most of us will go out in July when there is a formal opening ceremony for the court listed to take place. And um, we've talked about retirement. Um, it, it seems that you, you barely have time uh, to, to... We were talking about earlier about doing your gardening uh, before we started recording. But um, uh, what are you doing with your... Do you have any free time now? Um, um, well, I have some free time. Uh, I uh, enjoy doing garden. Uh, I play a bit of golf rather badly. <laughs> we've got children and grandchildren. So there's plenty to keep me occupied at home. Uh, good, good. Um, and uh, in the coming years, um, what do you see as being the biggest driving force now for change within 
within the legal profession generally, um, it, both in terms of access to justice, but also for us as lawyers. Um, what should we be looking out for? What advice would you be giving to people coming into perhaps the profession for the first time? I think that the pace of technological change is increasing and will continue to increase and adapting to and making use of the changes in technology mm. is probably the biggest single challenge which faces the legal profession. Mm. When I left the bar, emails were not in use. Returning to chambers as I have done uh, very, very recently, I see that emails and many other uh, IT things are in use. Yes. The yeah. world has changed while I was on the bench. And, uh, and, and really, uh, just, just to wrap up, um, uh, what, what, what advice do you have for people coming into the profession? I think the key thing is to be willing to work hard when a new case comes in, a new set of papers or a brief for a trial, roll up your sleeves, work all evening, work all weekend, do whatever the case requires. Mm. You've got to throw yourself into it in order to build up a practice at the bar. Mm. Uh, I don't think that has changed. Mm. Some of the tools with which people work have changed, but the work ethic of the bar is, I think, the same now as it always has been. And, of course, go out and buy a reform of civil justice, uh, surely. Well, obviously, I would commend the second edition of the reform of civil justice. Uh, I would also commend the White Book as an extremely helpful uh, practitioner aid. Mm. I was for many years the editor-in-chief of the White Book, but I've now just handed that role over to Sir Geoffrey Foss. Uh, to, to practice so you can spend more time on the golf course, hopefully. Well, uh, <laughs> I've handed it over because I'm no longer a serving judge and the editor-in-chief must be a serving judge. Right. Okay, well, thank you very much. Look, it's been great uh, to find out more about you and, and to know what the future holds. A pleasure to chat with you. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.